if you look into this infrastructure space, you'll find a lot of very strong African players and they're not staying in Africa. They're going global. And for me, this is a vindication of something we've been saying for years. There, These fintech companies in Africa, they're addressing emerging market problems, obviously. And they're doing this because they have to, because, you know, the problems exist in, our, in Africa. But then if they solve them in Nigeria, in South Africa, in Kenya, they're going to try and do this everywhere in the world and they're going to go global. And they're likely the first global champions that will emerge from Africa. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Fintech Leaders. Coming to you from New York City, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa, and I'm a co-founder of Gilgamesh Ventures, a venture capital fund that backs early-stage fintech entrepreneurs in the U.S., Canada, and Latin America. If you enjoyed this conversation, I invite you to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your show so more people can learn about fintech leaders. In this episode, I sit down with Tijan Deme, general partner of Partech Africa, one of the largest Africa-focused venture capital funds with close to 500 million in assets under management just for Africa. Some of their investments include Trade Depot, Wave, Yoko, Reliance, and Nomba. In this episode, we discuss a deep dive of the African fintech landscape and what he's learned from the most innovative companies and markets in the continent, fundraising lessons from building one of the first and largest dedicated African VC firms, important differences between VC investing in Africa versus a market like the US or Europe, launching Partech's annual Africa Tech Venture Capital Report, and a lot more. Well, Tijan, thank you for joining us and welcome to Fintech Leaders. I hear you're joining all the way from Senegal. Is that correct? Yes, it is. And I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for having me, Miguel. Excited for the conversation. I think we're going to learn a lot. Let's Start with your background, maybe share a bit of how you got to your current role. And I understand that you actually were an entrepreneur at some point, then you joined big tech, namely Google, and then you joined the dark side into venture capital investing. Maybe tell us about those transitions. I love that you call it the dark side like me. Well, first a disclaimer, this whole trajectory is not planned. It's just a drunken salesman walk, right? I grew up in Senegal, this small Francophone West African country. And like many African professionals you meet in the diaspora, I, I go to Europe after high school to study and then work in tech. I call this out because I think there's a warning there for diaspora African founders that I'll come back to. But then I worked in the US a bit, in in UK and Europe mostly. And about 20 years ago, after my first entrepreneurial actions in Europe didn't work out, I moved back to my home home country to start a company. And here is the warning. You, You left your country at 18 and you come back 10, 12 years later 
assuming you know this place, you're going to start a company in this place because you know it, and you don't. You've never worked here. You've never been here as an adult, actually, and all your assumptions are wrong. Your network is not existent, so probably your company is not well thought out and you will get burned big time. I did. Always, the short story is two years after I moved back in Senegal, I was broke, had a few months of rent and paid and just had to face the fact that this startup was not working. So I started another one. <laughs> and it, well, with two years of learning, it worked a bit better. I ended up joining Google in something that sounded pretty entrepreneurial because uh, they were starting Google Africa, this initiative to build their business in Africa. And for eight years there, I was involved in enabling a democratized access to internet, for instance, across the region, or supporting, you know, the growing ecosystem of internet entrepreneurs. So this exposed me to the emergence of, you know, a growing and very strong pool of entrepreneurs across Africa, whether it's in Nairobi, in Lagos, in South Africa, in Senegal, in Cote d'Ivoire. There was this first cohort of entrepreneurs, what I would call tech entrepreneurs, but really building internet-driven companies. And they were addressing very large, very deep, very foundational, you know, problems. And they were doing it in a very tough environment, of course. So when my friend of 30 years, Cyril, called and said with this idea to launch a fund to support them, you know, I was in. I was obviously in. It's the best thing for a failed entrepreneur is to leave it by proxy as an investor. And so I joined the dark side and here we are. Our whole project back then was to create a $100 million fund focused on Series A and B in Africa. I'll come back to this, but this is 2016. The whole market, the whole investment annually in Africa is about $300 million. So it sounds pretty ambitious. And we are selling that this market is growing. We are trying to sell an exponential curve, but it's, you know, you've zoomed on the beginning of the curve. It, it looks very flat. Again, I'll come back to this, but for some reason, investors trusted us and we launched our fund in 2018. It was about $140 million. We've invested that fund over the last five years uh, in a very interesting market. And we've just launched our second fund, which is about, we, we did a first closing with about $260 million and we are doing the final closing in a few weeks. And so that first fund, $140 million, was that focused exclusively in Africa? Yes, it's a fund that's focused exclusively in Africa. We've invested it into 17 companies across nine countries in Africa. It's, so nine countries are where these startups originated, of course. But if you look at the footprint today, they're active in more than 30 countries in Africa. Yeah, that makes sense. And I can imagine that raising that first fund was not easy at all. And obviously you found the right LPs eventually, but maybe tell us about that initial experience. What were some of the most surprising, frustrating questions that you got? And, and how do you think you actually were able to, to convince investors? Yes. So actually, for context, two, two important elements in the background is that Cyril and I, 
at that point had worked about 20 years in tech in Africa. So we, we knew this space very well, but we had zero experience in VC. So that was one interesting challenge. And then, of course, you're raising for Africa, early stage tech. And that was something not a lot of people were familiar with, to state it mildly. So there was a lot of education to do throughout this fundraising. One stat I love to give is between, you know, the moment we started this and our first closing, we pitched 360 investors to achieve our first closing. Well, I feel like, again, 20, about 25 of them, you know, in the first closing was a very good conversion rate. It took about one year and a half to get to first closing. Again, this is just, might sound from other places, might sound long, but it was deemed in Africa back then really a recall, a world-shattering recall to do this in less than two years. We spent, again, a lot of time explaining the tech ecosystem in Africa and which meant we had to collect a lot of data, build a lot of analysis just to bring people on board. And this uh, put us in a position at the end of 2016, we looked at all of the data we had and all of the re insights that sounded really surprising to a lot of people. And we decided the best thing to do would be to share it. So we published back then on Serial's LinkedIn profile, our first report on VC in Africa. And this has become a staple of our team. We publish every year at the end of the year a report on VC investment in Africa. It's been seven years. And so it's put us in a very interesting position to sort of be witnesses and narrators and, you know, active stakeholders in the evolution of this ecosystem. Yeah, I have certainly read at times your report, the latest one, but also I think going as far back as 2018, 19, I remember reading it. It's very good. And I imagine it also, it helps with brand building and finding interesting opportunities to invest in, right? You probably have entrepreneurs reading and then reaching out to you. Absolutely. So yes, publishing this report is good for us in many ways. First, our investment team across Africa participate in collecting this data. So it it means everybody all the time has their finger on the pulse. So that's one thing. Second, it gives us a wealth of data, now more than 10 years of data that we can leverage when we're looking at where we should be going next. For instance, my travel in two weeks, I will look at which company raised Series A or seed money 12 months ago that I should check into when I land in Lagos in two weeks. So it, it serves in, in many ways. But yes, it's, it's great for brand. But really, for me, the most important impact is it created this tool to tell everybody around the world what is going on in Africa. And at a crucial time when the ecosystem was really taking off, between our first report and the, the one last year, the total amount invested in the ecosystem in Africa went from, uh, let's say, in 2016, it was $360 million invested in the whole continent in a year. And then in 2022, it was about $6 billion. So it's interesting that we were publishing this and telling this story at the time where this was happening, because I think it, it contributed to a lot of people taking notice about what's going on in Africa. 
a lot of LPs actually thinking, well, maybe this is a time to, you know, invest in a fund in Africa. And a lot of investors, VCs sitting in the US or in Europe actually looking and later investing in African startups. No doubt. No doubt. And I'm, sh- I'm sure other funds raising to invest in Africa have used some of your stats from the report. <laughs> we are happy if they do. <laughs> and so that's the, the funding side. Let's talk more on the ground. Tell us about the companies. And I guess since it's a fintech podcast, let's zoom in on fintech. How has the industry evolved in the region since you started investing? So... Again, there are the numbers and then there are a few maybe anecdotal evidences. But for instance, if you think about Series A in Africa, in 2016, the average round size at Series A is about $3 million. In 2022, it is about $9 million. And yes, so, you know, companies, of course, this means valuations have increased, but it's for me, it is more of a normalization of what the Series A means. African companies have access now to more investment and more investors. And this means they've been able to raise the, the money they actually need to build. And, you know, while some people have been saying, hey, you know, this whole valuation increasing, this round size increasing, the way I look at it is the total amount of money raised, the average round size, all points to capital being handed over to African entrepreneurs to deploy, which means to test, innovate, try a lot of things, experiment and build. And this is great. A second data point that I think is interesting to look at is in 2016, overall, 200 individual investors participated in rounds in Africa. Sounds a lot, but out of those 200, only eight of them had done more than two deals in Africa. Everybody else was trying the market. Okay. In 2022, if you look at, you know, the total number of investors, it is above 1,000. But interestingly, if you're looking at who did more than five deals, you will find something like 400 investors. Everybody, so it means now there are a lot of investors who are really committed to this market, whether they are dedicated to Africa or not, who are really committed. They probably have at least one person in their team looking at Africa as a market and they're doing deals. Like they, they're committed, they're learning about the market. And it means African entrepreneurs have more, more opportunities. They have more options. It means also, and this was one important point for us when we started, Sin and I, it means they're getting the same treatment as a European or US startup. There's still a gap, but, you know, they're getting something close. And I have a very personal take on this, Miguel. I started my first company in Africa 20 years ago in a very different world where investment was not an option. And the way I process it is that this capital means velocity. It took me in 2000 to about two years to run my pilot. And the way I always tell it is that African entrepreneurship resource, counting it as years of entrepreneurs, is a very scarce resource really because not a lot of people are in a position to be entrepreneurs just for economic reasons. And they cannot do this for many years. And if it's going to take them two, three years to pilot because they're really funding this by doing gigs on the side, 
we are wasting that resource. Now, with funding as an, an option, they can raise money and pilot in six months. So we are multiplying the efficiency of this resource, African entrepreneurs, by six. And it's important to me personally. Let's talk about the countries that are leading the wave of innovation, especially in fintech. I think most people are going to be familiar with, you know, the top two, three largest economies, you know, probably Nigeria, Kenya, and South Africa, but there's more, obviously. Maybe what are the characteristics of the countries leading innovation in the continent? So, yes, you're right about typically 80% of the investment in Africa goes to these four countries. It used to be three countries, the ones you called out, Nigeria, Kenya, and South Africa. And around 2018, Egypt started picking up and now is number two, an extraordinary emergence. But in total, about investment, VC investment goes to 30 countries in Africa. So it's, it's spreading out. It is still you know, biased toward these four countries. And I think this needs to correct because innovation is happening everywhere. Now, if you look at it from a fintech perspective, Nigeria is the epicenter by far. And then South Africa, Egypt, and Kenya come. But in my team, at least, we look at these markets. We put them for now. And I'll come back to this because maybe this is this should not last. But for now, into two type of countries the ones that are bank-led and the ones that are mobile money-led. So Nigeria is something that might come as a surprise to many. So very large market, the largest GDP in Africa, a very you know, large and strong banking sector. And where you will find these unexpected things. Did you know that in Nigeria, most adults living in cities have two or three bank accounts? So, you know, you, you're going away from this narrative of low banking penetration to, in Nigeria, if you walk into Lagos today, 80% of the adults you meet have multiple bank accounts and they use them daily. And why do they use them daily? Because bank transfers in Nigeria, instantaneous. If you wire money to somebody else in Nigeria through your bank, it will happen in one minute, two minutes stops. They will receive the notification. The money will land in their bank account. And it is dirt cheap these transfers. And then there are hooks and APIs into this banking system because you can go through InterSwitch or NIBS and access these bank accounts and, you know, transact with an API. So this created a very strong, you know, foundation for fintechs. And fintechs emerged in Nigeria and built very quickly, not only to reach everybody, the bottom of the pyramid, but to build really sophisticated, you know, businesses, at least from a European or US perspective, fintechs in Nigeria are really sophisticated. They, they're much more, more complex than what you will find in Europe. And this is all built on the back of a, the banking infrastructure. And then if you go to Kenya, say, or Senegal, where I live, these ecosystems are completely mobile money led. 80% of the adults use mobile money daily. And you have, again, APIs and hooks into this mobile money infrastructure. And they're the, they, this is where fintechs are being built. So, again, at the end of the day, it creates very environments that are very conductive to fintech, but starting from very different backgrounds and, and contexts and infrastructure. Which is why you need local builders. Yes. 
And so what's interesting is when you go down the list of countries, this is true in many countries now. Of course, you go beyond the top four countries, then you look at Ghana, very strong mobile money environment, a lot of fintechs building. You look at Senegal, Cote d'Ivoire, these francophone countries, they're also seeing a, you know, a strong emergence of fintechs built on mobile money. You go to places like Uganda, East Africa in general, Uganda, Tanzania. So a lot of countries where we're seeing, so it might be misleading if you look at the amounts invested, but if you look at the transaction count, you will see a lot of seed activity in these countries. That is, you know, saying a lot about what the deal flow at Series A and B will look like in the coming years from these countries. So we are very optimistic about the market diversifying away from these top four countries. And especially in fintech, we're seeing it already happen because fintech is always a few years ahead of the curve in Africa. So are you seeing developments in B2B fintech as well? Because obviously... A lot of it, uh, what you've just mentioned, is, is banking consumer or, or providing services on top of existing payment rails. But how about the B2B side? So interestingly enough, in the tech startup ecosystem in Africa, people go very quickly to B2B because it gives you very quickly a sustainable business model. And again, if you think about an environment where access to capital have not been so easy building a sustainable business very early was is important. You know, companies want to generate revenue, collect, actually collect this revenue, and B2B is always better at this. So FinTech in Africa today, the way I, we look at it and where we see really interesting stuff has fallen for us into three main categories. Of course, there's the consumer. It started with basic things like, you know, money transfer. People wake up in a city, go to work, and halfway through their day earn enough money to send back home for dinner. So when I'm talking about remittance, I'm not talking about international remittance here. I'm talking about intra-city remittance as a use case that have been, you know, a driver of a lot of early fintechs in Africa. And these mobile transfer networks turned very quickly into wallets and then, you know, consumer finance. It's for a long time, it was dominated by telcos because they built from their telco infrastructure, mobile money uh, companies. But then as, you know, access to internet became more prevalent into African cities, pure digital players emerged. We've had the privilege to invest in, you know, one of them, the first pure digital player unicorn in this space in Africa, which is Wave. And to everybody's Astonishment. And this happened in Francophone Africa in, a, in my small hometown, which I can't thank them enough because they validated everything I've been saying about Senegal being the best country in the world. But seriously, it marks the emergence of pure digital players, not telco-led, into consumer finance. So this is one group where you can see now a lot of people operating. And then there is a second group which has been B2B players focused on merchant payment acceptance. Again, there's been a lot about people in this cash economy, how to enable merchants to accept digital payments, whether it is card payments in some countries where, again, South Africa, Nigeria, Egypt, where there was a strong bank penetration and people actually had cards. And then in the mobile-led countries, how to accept mobile money for merchants. So we've seen a lot of companies build there. You've 
had on this podcast, Yoko, which is basically block for Africa and who built an amazing business with this in South Africa. Uh, but again, everywhere else, we're already seeing a lot of businesses, a lot of very good businesses enabling merchant acceptance. But then these businesses very quickly evolve into, you know, looking at more of the needs of the merchant and become merchant banking business. So you will see a lot of those. And then the third category that people don't hear a lot because they really operate B2B is these infrastructure players who enable, you know, whether they are aggregators, cross-border payment companies, payout companies, who build the underlying infrastructure that everybody else is building on top of. One, like from our portfolio, I like to give as an example because very few people have likely heard about from it, is TerraPay. We invested three years ago in this infrastructure player who was enabling remittance between UK and Ghana and who today is number one in the world in terms of volume of transaction, just building this business in emerging markets. You've probably never heard of them, right? Well, I'm a fintech nerd, so I've probably heard. Okay, so you do, Miguel. You, you know, you, you're cheating. You're cheating. <laughs> but so, again, I call this out because if you look into this infrastructure space, you'll find a lot of very strong African players, and they're not staying in Africa. They're going global. And for me, this is a vindication of something we've been saying for years. There, These fintech companies in Africa... They're addressing emerging market problems, obviously. And they're doing this because they have to, because, you know, the problems exist in our, in Africa. But then if they solve them in Nigeria, in South Africa, in Kenya, they're going to try and do this everywhere in the world and they're going to go global. And they're likely the first global champions that will emerge from Africa. That is certainly inspiring to hear. And, and I will definitely bother you after this podcast so we can bring some of those entrepreneurs on the show. <laughs> Please. Yes. Let's talk a bit about the investor side, Tijan. You collaborate and work with investors who are not only looking at Africa, but investing in the US, Europe, around the world. And obviously you co-invest and, and you have people on your team focus on Africa. So what I'm trying to get at is, are there any qualities for successful Africa-focused VCs that aren't necessarily necessary for investors looking at a country like the US, a market like the UK? Yes, I love this question. Actually, I will seg into a, another question and come back to this because we, what we have not done is talk about why Partec Africa is doing this, why Partec is doing this in Africa. Because as I told you at the beginning, Cyril called me and said, let's create this fund. And we sat down and realized we didn't have any investment pedigree. And we went to talk to friends, actually, to former classmates at Partec. And we said, we want to do this within a platform that offers a few things. That first, where we're going to create this fund as a commercial fund. It will not be an impact fund. We want people to invest on commercial terms in Africa because they understand this is an opportunity and it will pay out. It was important. Partec did. We wanted a platform that had experience investing everywhere in the world at all stages, seed, you know, venture and growth. 
And then we wanted also come a platform where from which we could build a program to really support these African companies, especially to support them as they try to scale in 54 different geographies. If you're building a fintech in Africa and you're ambitious, you want to go across the continent, you have to deal with 54 regulators. And, you know, you have to build bank partnerships in 54 countries, which means, you know, working with probably the global corporate that are already present in 20, 30 markets already in Africa. And Partech already had this problem. So we went and built this from Partech. And as we invest today, we realize a few things are important to us when what is important from our toolbox and what we're looking for in when we co-invest. So I think local presence is an obvious first important thing. And but what is not obvious is why it is important. You can actually invest into any African market sitting in London, in New York, anywhere, you will see the deal flow, probably. And you will be able to spot really good entrepreneurs and invest in them. I think the local presence come into play when you're thinking about, you know, investing from a real practical understanding of the market, you know, the problems and the industries and the value chains these startups aim to disrupt. Because as, for instance, fintech becomes more and more sophisticated, what these fintechs are building becomes more and more complex and difficult to understand. And you really need to get it from, you know, that practical knowledge of what they are talking about. And then second, this presence and proximity and engagement will allow you to, you know, build hooks into the business ecosystems. For instance, if a startup you invest in in seed wants a partnership with a bank, you want to be able to help reach the right people in this bank and enable this partnership. And then something that is much less obvious, if a Nigerian company wants to expand into Ghana or into Abidjan, they like me, they probably flew out of Nigeria, studied in the UK, they know Nigeria, they know the UK, they know the US, they don't know anything about Cote d'Ivoire. So actually they need somebody who knows these markets, their neighborhoods, and who can help them hire the right people in this market, who can help them build partnerships in these markets. So in this sense, we value a lot local presence. So if I'm going to invest, let's say in Egypt, where we don't have a team yet, it is very important to me that I work with an investor who has local presence in Egypt and who can help me with this. So that, that's one aspect of local presence that I think is not well understood. And then the second is, and we look at this when we are talking to global investors, a diverse operations background in the investor team is important to us. Again, just so that you can speak from a place where you've done these things and you can really be a good, you know, advisor and sparring partner to the company. But also, again, where global investors are very valuable is experience supporting companies in later stages. You know, when you co-invest, we, we are very, you know, proud today to have in our portfolio co-investors such as General Atlantic, Tequoia, Founders Fund, all of these guys. And they've gone through, you know, all of the stages that we have to learn about. As an ecosystem, as an African investor, myself and the founder I'm supporting, we don't really know what it is to be a growth stage startup, what it is to be to prepare for IPO, what it is to be to face an M&A offer, because our market have not gone, has not gone through this yet. So, you know, working with these global investors, again, 
I am cheating here because I'm part of a platform, Partech, that is already doing this in the US, in, the, in Europe, and in Asia. But it is important to be able to tap into that experience. And then finally, something that I found very valuable, whether it is from a local or a global investor, is just a willingness to sit down and go deep and learn about the models you're investing in. Again, if you're a global investor, probably this African founder is telling you about something you've never heard of. But your stupid questions are valuable. They force, you know, everybody to think from the basics and build from there. And then at the end of the day, you know, after a few iterations, it actually, you know, builds your knowledge and makes you invest from a place of expertise. I'll put quotes about expertise here because, again, it's all new, but it creates this learning process, which after a few iterations makes you a bit less stupid. I don't have a lot of illusions about, you know, as investors, but it put us in a good place, I think. That's fascinating. And, and I see parallels with other regions like Latin America, Southeast Asia, probably even the Middle East to a lesser extent. Miguel, can you allow me to interrupt you here and say two things? Please. Two things. First, Latin America is who we want to be when we grow up. So we, we watch Latin America from Africa as, you know, the, the big brother who's two years ahead. And we look a lot at what's going there and as a source of inspiration, emulation, and learning. Then the second thing I need to say is, and I, I mentioned this earlier before we started recording, you were sitting here as a podcast host, and you've talked to a few hundred people. You've talked to 300-something fintech players. That's right. You've been learning a lot. You know, you've been doing this, what I've been talking about, starting with probably stupid questions and growing and learning. So you were cheating now that you were an investor because you've gone through all of these conversations. I know we're lazy. We could just sit down and listen to all your podcasts and learn as much as you. But I think it's important to call this out as a very important, you know, position of learning and position of knowledge and expertise over time. It probably means I should start a podcast. And then you've done this a lot in Latin America. Again, it puts you in this special place where you can talk a lot about where the African ecosystem should be going to next. That I think it's important to call out. Sorry for interrupting. No, thank you, Tijan. And we'll have to organize some sort of visit from you and maybe some portfolio founders to, to places like Brazil or, or Mexico. And Absolutely. I'll be happy to help you with that. And so going forward, before we run out of time, what has you the most excited about, you know, the next year or two. And by the way, you, you mentioned a little bit at the beginning, you guys just raised recently, a couple months ago, a fund that's, I think, twice as big as the initial one or, or close to that. And, you know, that puts you in an enviable position in a market where there isn't so much capital. So with that in context, what has you the most excited? Two things. First, the early stage let's say, of the African VC rocket ship is really doing well. And for instance, if you take fintech, four years ago, there was about 50 transactions per year, above 200K. 2021, there was 220 roughly. 
2022, it's the downturn or disaster. The whole ecosystem has gone down. The total investment amount has gone down 60% or something. Well, there's still been about 200 transactions in fintech in Africa at the C stage. This is fueling for me a lot of, you know, deal flow for series A and B in fintech in Africa. This, there, there are a lot of founders out there building interesting fintech startups and they're getting their first seat ticket now. It's a really interesting position to be in. Fintech is still the largest segment in all top 10 markets in Africa. And, you know, I tell people usually this fintech space, the, the whole flywheel has been proven. We've seen fintech startups from all the way from seed to billion dollar companies and acquisitions. Paystack was acquired by Stripe. And we've seen everything. All the model has been validated, which means, you know, investing in fintech is now sort of a very conservative thing to do. But what people don't realize is that the fintech space has been focused in very few sub-segments. There are very few boxes that have been explored. There's a lot more to explore in fintech. We've barely scratched the surface. So there is still a lot more to do in fintech. For instance, if you look at B2B, you know, what started as merchant payment acceptance is evolving into merchant banking, lending, cash flow management, bookkeeping platforms that are coming up. What started in B2C as transfer has evolved into mobile money and then personal finance. And where now people have started building a lot of personal finance use cases. So it is this combination of a space where the whole flywheel has been proven, but where there is a lot more to explore because we've just focused on few, few use cases. So that keeps me really excited. Another thing is if you look at the startups that are really doing well in Africa, founders, the quality of these founders, by the way, is outstanding. And I say this from the perspective of being on a global platform where we see founders from everywhere. African founders are really strong. There's probably a selection bias here where the few that actually make it, you know, are really good. But what they've been able to do, acquisition at scale in a market that is mostly offline, which means a combination of lead generation online and closing people offline. That is really interesting. But now they can do this at scale. You know, you, you've had your call here. They, they, the, the way they've been acquiring at scale merchants in South Africa and now in other markets is really interesting. The second thing I really like is that people have started realizing that to succeed as a startup in Africa, you have to be ferociously focused on user experience. User experience is key. And why it makes me excited is that the legacy businesses are really bad at user experience. Again, you, if you're in fintech, the legacy banking industry have never heard of the word customer experience. And, you know, there is a large population, very young digital natives in Africa who are coming into adulthood and who will need financial services. And they will have to go to these fintechs to get it because there is no way they're going to leave with the banking experience that, you know, the legacy banks are offering. So it creates a lot of demand, pent up demand for fintechs. And then after, you know, the downturn, after COVID, I've seen how this ecosystem has been resilient to shocks. And if you're going to invest in Africa, you will have to accept that a lot of these markets will live through these macroeconomic shocks. And the fact that founders have gone through these and come out 
the other side stronger makes me really, you know, excited and hopeful. So again, I'm biased. This is my market. I love it. I believe in it. But there is really a lot of things to say about this market. So Dejan, I suspect that this podcast is, first of all, going to inspire a few founders to go out and, and start building in Africa. And I really hope that we convince some new investors to start putting capital to work. So thank you so much for joining. It's been truly informative, interesting to learn. And, you know, I'm going to be following very closely how the story keeps evolving. Thank you for having me, Miguel. And hopefully, again, we will make a list of founders, more African founders to invite to this podcast and make a few more interesting conversations for you. Again, I envy you this. But I'll just go and listen to all your 300 podcasts. <laughs> Amazing. Thank you, Dijan. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed this great episode with Tijan from Partech. If you want more interviews, make sure to subscribe, follow, and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your shows. It helps and means a lot. And if you have any suggestions or thoughts about the show, just drop me a line on Twitter or LinkedIn. Signing off, till next week, I'm your host, Miguel Almasa.